Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food businesses about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Yulia Childers. Yulia lives in Prattville, Alabama, and sells European-style breads and baked goods with her cottage food business, Wild Yeast Kitchen. Yulia is a classically trained pianist from Ukraine, but started making bread in the United States when she couldn't find any that reminded her of her hometown. She started selling her items in 2016, and her old-fashioned products are now very popular with locals. So I'm looking forward to hearing her unique story today. And with that, welcome to the show, Yulia. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Yulia, can you go back to when you got this business started? And I think actually even before you started the business, you started making bread. Can you just share kind of how you got going with this? Sure. I was born and raised in Ukraine, in Soviet Union, actually. And uh, there are many very good cooks in my family and bakers, but we never actually had to bake bread because bread was readily available to us. We had excellent quality uh, bread available every day. And, you know, food trucks would bring it to the local bakeries twice a day. We would get it hot. And it was it was such an essential and basic thing that was always cheap and always available to us. So nobody in my country really baked bread. When we immigrated in the late 90s, bread became one of the sore points with us because we could never find anything that remotely reminded us of good bread. American bread was a mockery, in our opinion. You know, with all the uh, abundance of food around us in the supermarkets and other stores, we could never find a loaf of bread that was decent in texture and flavor. And uh, it was a a very um, painful thing for new immigrants. And with time, we kind of uh, settled down and decided that this is one thing that we're going to forever miss and we're just going to live without You know, there were several stores in the area where I lived in uh, Maryland and then some European food stores in Atlanta, where I moved a few years later, that sold uh, European style breads. And even those were of poor quality. They were loaded with preservatives and wrapped in plastic for longer shelf life. And they just uh, were not what I was looking for. So what does the what what makes the European style of bread so much different? I just think that the European breads in general have a great respect for artisan bread making. They have respect for flour, they have no additives. The grain is generally grown in a more respectable way. There's no chemicals, there's no flavor enhancers, definitely no preservatives. And the bread is such a long-standing tradition in Europe that nobody ever thought of, you know, streamlining, and I'm putting it in a big fat air quotes, streamlining the production to the point that bread loses its nature. It has the original flavor. It has robust crust. It has moist, stretchy crumb. It has longer shelf life, not because it has preservatives, but because it was it was produced in the old-fashioned way with slow fermentation process. It was baked at the right temperature. You know, I've heard some horror stories about American bread that 
from mix to to plastic bag it's like two hours you know it's 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 not bread it's it's a uh, technological wonder and definitely is worth uh, looking at as a technological miracle and you know you can make a video of it and this would be a wonderful thing to watch but that's not bread it's a product there's sugar too right oh yeah of course because when you when you when you try to uh, produce the bread in such a speedy speedy way your flavor suffers and that's the first thing that goes so in order for it to rise faster they load it with a lot of yeast um so it puffs up like a balloon and of course when you puff up so quickly there's no way to, for it to develop any kind of flavor so they enhance it with sugars and other flavor enhancers they add you know for those whole grain breads and then again i'm putting big fat air quotes around it you know whole grain breads they put some you know flavors so it resembles a whole grain bread but more and you know those breads just don't taste like anything they taste like yeast so when your customers you know many of them you live in alabama many of them are american probably have never tried european bread before when they try your product for the first time what is the reaction typically there's two kinds of reaction there's one group of people that taste the bread and say, oh, my God, this is how my grandma used to make bread. OK, and then there's a second time reaction is, oh, you know what? I traveled to Germany 10 years ago and that's the kind of bread they had there. So I have customers that remember the good bread because their grandparents made them in the oven at home. And some people who traveled around and they just have tasted the right kind of bread. So it always stands out to them. It always stands out to them. And this is my favorite kind of customer because I know that this is not something new to them. This is something they know and forgotten. And it came back to them because I certainly can relate to that feeling that lost something that you had in your childhood and now it's back. It's a very powerful emotion, and you can't beat that. So let's talk about your childhood a little bit. I mean, are you are you able to recreate and make all the breads or items that you had when you were a child? And what, what are you currently making and selling? I am very uh, spontaneous in what I like to bake. In the beginning, when I just started baking bread myself, I was trying to recreate something I used to eat in Ukraine, like, you know, white crusty breads or rye bread that reminded me of something I bought in my bakery, you know, 25 years ago. But with time, I started exploring other techniques and other culture breads. And without having a concept for my bakery, I think that it eventually sort of by itself crystallized as, a, you know, breads from around the world. I didn't intend it to be this way, but I think that with time, sort of the theme emerged. And now I have a Scandinavian-inspired breads, a German-inspired breads, Italian-inspired breads. So I have different types of loaves that may remind people of the country that they came from. You know what I mean? I assume you don't have any American-style breads. <laughs> Actually, some people approach me about making this, what is it called? The salt-dry bread. But this is a very uh, tricky 
product that I probably wouldn't venture into. It's it's kind of dangerous to produce. It's fully bacteria based, no yeast, and it can be dangerous for your health, literally. But people who grew up eating that bread, they're swearing by it, and I hear wonderful things about it. I'm just a little scared of it. <laughs> I've never heard of that style of bread, but it, it does sound a little, a little daunting. Well, so what did it take for you to learn how to create this bread i mean you said you didn't there weren't people baking bread because it was just readily available in ukraine so was it difficult to learn how to actually recreate the bread it was not difficult as a physical process but it took some time to figure out what to expect from the how the dough behaves what it needs to look like when it's ready to go because there were no teachers around me and Everything that I've learned, I learned from online videos or articles. And, you know, internet is a wonderful resource, but it's not 100% true. So somebody else's technique that they invented may not be the one for you. Bread is a very uh, finicky thing. And it's highly dependent on your particular environment, on your ambient temperature, on the humidity in your kitchen, what kind of flour you use, what kind of water. And, you know, all these things come with experience. Nobody can teach you that, even if you go to bread school. And I've been to bread school. <laughs> so, Is it also an ingredient thing? I mean, I know there's many different kinds of grains. Uh, we've lost a lot of the diversity in grains in the United States. But are there just grains that are in Ukraine that you can't get here? And is that part of it, too? You know, I haven't really gotten that deep in the grain varieties one simple reason for that is they're not really readily available to me locally i imagine that there's got to be a difference between the wheat here and the wheat in ukraine you know ukraine is a unique country in a way that it's been for years called the breadbasket of europe it's got like the most topsoil of any other country in the world and their grains are wonderful but i don't know much about the ukrainian wheat believe it or not I just know that for me to produce decent bread, I need to use a flour that was not bleached and not treated in any way. And it doesn't have any bromates in it because bromates are not good for your health. And, you know, they're banned in Europe and we still are eating them here. So do you need any special equipment to make this bread? Like are you using a pizza oven or a brick oven? Uh, no, I use my regular kitchen oven, but I put two baking stones in it. And so I bake on two shelves in my oven and I put two thick baking stones. And that's the only hack that I'm using to make my oven a little bit more ready for bread. It's still not ideal. And I'm hoping eventually to get the oven that is full brick, uh, you know, have like a refractory brick oven type eventually I will get that. But right now I bake in a regular kitchen oven with two baking stones. And I created a sort of a steaming mechanism by putting a tray on the bottom with a lava rocks on it. And when I put the bread in the oven, I splash water on those rocks and it creates a big steam burst, which is sufficient for making bread crusty and beautiful. Yeah, I've seen some of your bread and it looks amazing. So let's talk about selling a little bit. When did you start selling products for the first time? I started doing that in 2016. I was thinking about that for a while, but I am a 
chicken and I'm uh, over analyzing everything. So I almost talked myself out of it because I was just afraid that I was going to fail. And what if this and what if that's going to happen, you know? So, but I had a dream. I had a dream of going to San Francisco Baking Institute and taking their professional course. And I couldn't afford it at the time. So I started baking for a market because I wanted to save some money to go to that school. So my necessity pushed me <laughs> beyond my fears and the uh, lack of confidence. And I started baking for a local farmer's market. And the setup was very easy and quick. And I decided not to overthink it and just start small. And it just kind of took off very quickly. So this is cool. You actually sold bread in order to afford the class to train yourself on how to make better bread. So what, what, how much did that class cost in San Francisco? I think that the total cost of that program was like 14000 or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> plus, uh, plus, you had to be there for three months to take that class. I had to live there. I had to rent a room. I had to drive around because I wasn't going to you know, spend time, you know, riding a bus everywhere. So, you know, I had to rent a car and I had to take myself away from my family for for three months. So it was an adventure. (laughs) Wow. That is a commitment uh, both in time and money. Now, was it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the best thing that ever happened to me on my own volition. (laughs) I had a dream to go to that school for like, six or eight years and uh, I kept checking their website every year to see oh they're doing the professional course now look at that and then I made inquiries and they gave me the price and I was like no there's no way and I had uh, a very demanding full-time job at that time and I just kept looking at those brochures and catalogs and kept drooling over them for years and years and years and then the year I finally decided I want to go there they raised the price. <laughs> so, so I was like, uh, oh, no, what's going to happen to me now? So one year, my husband just said, you know, you need to do it now. You, st- you need to stop looking at those catalogs and you just need to go and do it. So I started baking. I wanted to save money. And I, we finally agreed that I'm going to go. And uh, I did it over summer. And my husband took care of everything at home. It was a fantastic experience. Fantastic. Now, I assume that you made a lot of bread before you went to that school, and you probably learned a ton just from experience. So did they actually teach you a lot more about how to make bread? Yes. One of the reasons I wanted to go there is because they teach you on commercial equipment. And I have a goal of eventually opening a commercial bakery. So I wanted to sort of overcome that fear of large equipment and to see how to scale my small scale production, how to, how to grow it exponentially and not be afraid of it because I know nothing about commercial equipment. They have a very large baking kitchen where they actually produce their bread for the bakery that they run in San Francisco. So it's a fully operational commercial bakery which during the day they use as a school. So they have several large deck ovens. They have, you know, gigantic mixers. They have all the, you know, the dividers and all the, all the equipment that you need in the, in the commercial bakery. And so we got exposed to most of it in a very short period of time. 
and they do everything hands-on day and night you know you you come there at seven o'clock in the morning and you leave at 4 p.m and you work all day so it was a, a, a full immersion course really really good so what kinds of things did you take away from that program and i and it was on commercial equipment and you'd like to get there at some point but were you able to take ideas from that and apply it to your current business in your home kitchen yes absolutely there were several things that were extremely helpful to me they teach you how to think as a a master of production not a person who does individual loaves one at a time there were several things that i'm using right now and they helped me tremendously to streamline my process here's a good example uh, let's say you're doing a cinnamon swirl bread. You roll out the dough, then you have to cover it with the sugar and cinnamon, roll it up and put it in a pan. They are not thinking like that. They want you to roll out a big sheet of dough, cover it with sugar and cinnamon, roll it up, and then cut it into individual loaves and put it in the pan. It's a slight tweak, but it saves you a tremendous amount of time because you're not working one loaf at a time. So they think like producers of the, you know, mass quantity of bread rather than doing one loaf at a time. And they also teach you how to think ahead and plan your production in such a way so that your time is used most efficiently. So you can do several things at once without sacrificing quality and kind of think like a mass producer, but still be an artisan because you put your hands on everything. It's not a machine that does that. So let's talk about your production a little bit. What's the process like for getting your breads produced on a weekly basis? Well, I have two bakes a week. One of them is for deliveries, which I do most of the work during the day, and then I deliver in the evening, right at dinner time. And then the second bake I have is the for the market, and that's a big bake. The big bake I start on Friday morning, late morning. I do a lot of prep and mixes, and roll my croissant dough, and laminate my croissants, and I start baking probably at 6 p.m. on Friday, and I don't stop until 6 a.m. Saturday morning. Because my oven is my bottleneck, I have to use my time in the oven very efficiently, so when one bread is baked and goes out of the oven, I give it 10 minutes to reheat, and then I put the next bread in which means that my entire production is organized around my oven time, which means I have to mix the breads according, time my bread mixing, dividing, and proofing accordingly so that by the time it's ready to go, oven is available. It's an art, and it took me a while to get it right. I use spreadsheets a lot, and I created basically color-coded timelines of each bread because each bread has its own timeline and I kind of slide those timelines against each other to create the oven schedule wow so you're you're doing literally a full days of work just to prep the bread and then you're baking for 12 hours straight overnight right ending at 6 a.m and then when does the market start market starts at six but I don't go that early because I'm still baking at that time so I usually before COVID started, I, I, I was at the market at 7.45 and I stayed there until everything sold out. And sometimes it sells out in two hours and sometimes you stay until noon. So I can never predict that. But 
as the COVID, you know, put pressure on us to be exposed less to masses of people, I schedule a pickup time now. So instead of coming and selling actively large quantities of bread, I take pre-orders, I pack everything uh, in plastic bags, and then I come to the market with all those bags ready to go. And I, to- I tell people to come and pick them up uh, within a two-hour window from 9 to 11. So they come and grab their bag and we never touch each other. And that's how I do things now. Well, that is some serious dedication. That's over 24 hours of work every week. Yes, it is. Yes, that's <laughs> Are correct. Are you used to that now or is it really hard? I am used to it and it is lucky for me as a baker that I'm a night owl. I have always been a night owl. I don't like rising in the morning, early in the mornings. I do most of my work at night, so I love that. It's quiet. No one's bugging me. I'm listening to my music or I, you know, play some movie or TV show in the background, and I just work. It, it's great. I, I'm very good with concentrating alone on things. So, <laughs> Would it not be possible to just, you know, get all your bread baked by like 9 p.m. or something and then get a full night's rest and then go to market or is it just a freshness issue? It's both. It's freshness issue, especially with pastry because croissants don't have a long shelf life and they're best when they're still crunchy, you know? So, and after they've set for several hours, they become not crunchy, but chewy. And that's, you know, I don't like them that way. (laughs) And I'm sure my customers wouldn't either. And, you know, my family still needs to exist in that space. So during the day, they, you know, they have their dinner, they they go through the kitchen as they need. And I think that baking at night is a given when you're a baker, whether you're cottage food or full production, commercial bakery, some baking needs to be done at night before the market. So you say that's a very common thing for cottage food oh, bakers. Oh, it is. It's very, it's very common. Uh, in, in commercial bakeries, there's a night shift that starts at 3 a.m. They start baking at 3 a.m. Because they have larger ovens, they can afford, uh, you know, baking it off a lot faster than I do. So they don't need 12 hours to bake all of their stuff. But their night shift starts usually at, at 3 a.m. Wow. So you do that for the Saturday market. And about how much bread are you making for this market? If I have a very, very full day, I can probably bake about 100 loaves. And then on top of that, I will make about 100 pieces of pastry. And sometimes I add bagels if somebody requested bagels. So that's that's probably my maximum in this oven, in this kitchen. And you always sell out. So uh, almost, almost always, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, did you ever consider adding a second oven? That seems like a natural step. I want to. I want to add a primary oven that would be much larger than this one. There are several things that are happening in my life right now that keep me from doing that. But that's in the, that's in the plans for sure. I'd imagine it's a pretty expensive oven too. It is expensive, but it's worth it. It's, it's a proper oven that does properly bake bread without having to sacrifice quality or working around its insulation deficiencies or the temperature deficiencies you know anything that your kitchen oven cannot do you have to work around to produce the bread on a level you know now at the market 
most of your customers are probably regulars, but when you deal with somebody new, do you have to educate them about your product? Yes, I do. Again, before COVID, I used to offer some bread samples uh, and people could grab them from the bag and taste different things. And then, of course, I will talk to them about what the the difference between my process and the the process that they use to make uh, commercial bread in the grocery store and why it's different, why it's potentially healthier and more wholesome. And I I find that I have to educate my new customers on what sourdough is. Because when you buy sourdough at the grocery store, it's usually just sour bread. That they literally put like acid in it to make it taste acidic. And uh, maybe a little bit of rye to give it a slightly different flavor. And people are used to the idea that sourdough is just a sour bread. And they are very surprised when they find that sourdough is merely a technique. And there are many, many, many different varieties of sourdough. So they asked me, do you have any sourdough? And I said, most of my bread is sourdough. Here's 10 varieties and none of them are sour. (laughs) I really don't (laughs) like sour bread. (laughs) You know, a lot of people who tasted San Francisco sourdough, that's a sour bread. And they like it very much. They just like that tangy, you know, that tartness. And uh, I'm not a big fan of very sour bread in general. And all of my sourdoughs are very mild. They taste more like yogurt than they taste like vinegar. And like San Francisco sourdough is more vinegary in flavor. So I have to educate my customers about nuances of that and why my bread is so hard because it's crusty and why my bread is so, you know, it has flour on top of it. And one customer asked me, oh my God, that bread is really starting to go, right? It's all covered in mold. And I'm like, what? <laughs> mold? Why would I sell moldy bread? Oh, that's pretty funny. So pe- people, yeah, people ask some ridiculous things sometimes. I am very lucky that in my area, we have a training military base for officers. And these people are not just in the military, but they're experienced and they have been around, including Europe. They stationed in Europe and a lot of them know what the good bread needs to be. And so they, when they hear about me, they come specifically to the market to get my bread because they know what the good bread should be like. And I'm very lucky in that respect because we have these guys in the area. So let's say somebody isn't fortunate enough to live in Prattville, Alabama, how would they know, like if they were trying to find this kind of bread, how would they know it's the real deal? I would say that if they are looking for something like that, they need to make a, a search on artisan bakery or artisan bread. There's a lot of those bakeries around now, maybe not in Alabama, maybe not in my region. Lucky for me, right? I'm <laughs> the only one here. But those artisan bakeries are popping up like mushrooms everywhere. So you just need to look for artisan bread. Well, sourdough, yeah. The whole sourdough movement has been taking off, and I've seen a ton of sourdough bakers coming out of the woodwork. But I just don't know if your bread is different than the typical sourdough that a lot of bakers are making, or maybe it's the exact same thing. I think that it's, it's similar to many of them, 
However, I offer a lot more varieties. And some people in my bread, in the micro bakery community think that I'm crazy. I literally had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. I'm in a, one of the Facebook groups that is dedicated specifically to micro bakeries like mine. And we have a lot of discussion about how we, how we produce, how we organize, what kind of flour, et cetera, et cetera. And when people hear that I make like 13 varieties of bread every market, they think that I'm insane because it, it's a lot of work. You know, think about it. 13 varieties of bread means you have to mix 13 different kinds of dough. And then each of them have to be treated separately on its own time scale, on its own timeline, sort of. And they think that I'm crazy. But I think it's a way to introduce many different faces of sourdough because there's more than one you know well is there a choice to offer 13 different kinds of bread is that a choice that's just based on your passion for this and your bread or is that an actual business decision where you can make more money or do better with your business by offering that kind of diversity it's both first of all for me what's in it for me it for me personally, it, I'm getting bored. If I, if I do the same stuff over and over, I will get bored. And I don't want to be making 100 pounds of dough and dividing it into 100 pieces and making 100 loaves of the same stuff. It's boring to me. Now, for my customers, there are people that don't like that particular kind of bread. Let's say I would make only three varieties of bread and they don't like them. You know, So I offer more varieties so that there's a little bit for everyone. So this is for the customer and it's a business decision because if I have more varieties to offer to the customer, they have more choices. They are more likely to come next time because they're not seeing same old, same old every week. I rotate some varieties from week to week. And so they're interested and they would come next time to see what's new. So as a business, this, this is healthy for me because I get more sales that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, we were talking a little bit about all of the sourdough. Like, this is kind of a sourdough renaissance, and I see a ton of bakers popping up that are selling sourdough now, like way more than even a few years ago. And one of the kind of interesting things I get to see working heavily with cottage food operations that is that there seems to be quite, I don't know, they're kind of gender roles that people fall into that I've noticed where you have like your decorated cookies and decorated cakes. Almost always there'll be women that take on those businesses. And I have noticed that the vast majority of bread bakers are men. And I, and so I just wanted to ask you about this because I don't know if you've noticed that or felt that. I don't know if it's like a boys club do you have any um, thoughts about that? Because you're you're one of the only women I've seen running a, a bread business like this. And do you know why there would be that kind of gender difference? I don't think that I've noticed the same tendency. I think that um, maybe we know more about men because a lot of the people who revolutionized or brought back this whole sourdough movement are men. And most of them wrote books, and we have a lot of really good books written by men. But that's not always the case, you know. Like, I went to a bread conference, bread expo last year in Las Vegas, 
And I took some classes there and most of these classes were led by women and they're pillars of the community. They're really big businesses like Amy's Bread in New York. And there's this company that's called Hewn. I forgot. They're in Missouri, I think. Uh, both of these ladies wrote books on bread and they, they're doing great. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's accurate anymore. Maybe it used to be that way. Hmm. I just don't know that many sourdough bread bakers that are women. And I guess one of the things I was wondering is, is it a physically intensive process where it takes some extra yes. strength? That is absolutely true. That Now, that part is true. It's physically demanding. It requires strong backs. And so a lot of the bakers, especially the night bakers and big production bakers are young men. And that is accurate. But a lot of those businesses are managed by women. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is physically demanding because you have to lift 50 pound bags of flour constantly and carry big bins of dough back and forth and you know and you have to work with your shoulders a lot because you make a lot of movements shaping the loaves and shoveling for the lack of a better description shoveling the you know shoving the bread in the oven and out of the oven it's a lot of shoulder shoulder work and back work yeah there are probably a lot more women bakers out there i just probably not familiar with them so going back to the production and selling process, you talked a lot about your market on Saturday and that big bake on Friday, but then you also do this subscription service that happens early in the week. Can you talk a little bit about the subscription service model? Sure. Subscription is great. You, you know, if you, it, a lot of you probably are familiar with the community supported agriculture, but same thing is now happening with the artisan bakeries. It's literally called community supported bakery. It works the same way. You offer sort of shares of your bakery and people buy a share and they, for that money, they get a, a weekly or bi-weekly delivery. I offer several different kinds of shares based on like basic flavor preferences. You know, some people cannot have seeded breads. And so I created a separate subscription that is called seeded breads. And some people like adventure, and so they pick the baker's choice. And some people like rye breads, so they pick rye breads, stuff like that. And so I rotate several varieties of bread within each of those subscriptions, and some of them are overlapping, of course. Now, what is the baker's choice, and is that your most popular subscription? Baker's choice, yes, it is the most popular because I can put literally whatever I want in their bag on any given week. And I rotate them, of course, also, but there's a broader variety of breads that are available to people through that subscription because it covers everything. And sometimes I make experimental breads and I, I, I will choose to put that in a bag this week because I want to try and see how people do with it. So that's the most popular one by far. And then uh, some people prefer to get the same bread every week and they let me know about it. You know, just bring me that. I have a customer that has been buying the same bread every week for four years, and she's she's happy, you know? Now, do the customers have to do it every week, or could they do it every two weeks or every month? They, they can do it on whatever terms they want. They can do weekly, bi-weekly, once a month, or they can even say, give it to me on every third month, of th every third Thursday. I, I know, it's up to them. 
I use a local harvest website. Local harvest is a, a company that serves people like me and small farms and supports the CSA type model. And they do everything for you. You pay a small subscription fee to them and they, they handle all the orders, subscriptions, cancellations, and, you know, farm go, goes on vacation, customer goes on vacation. They handle all of that for you. So the, it's, it's a wonderful service and I'm very pleased. Right. Yeah. So I saw that at localharvest.org. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So uh, that's kind of how the technology happens. Right. There's several, I think there are several companies like that now, but of all the companies that I have, I have seen local harvest is the most, they charge the least money and offer the most options. So <laughs> I don't know how they do that, but they do it. Now I think it's on Wednesdays, or maybe it's Thursdays that you do this bake and delivery. Why did you choose the the timing? Why I chose Thursday? I used to do it on a different day of the week. I don't even remember. I think it was a Tuesday or something. And then because I'm a small local baker and I still have a family to take care of, my kid had more activities on other days. So Thursday was better for me. Makes sense. And do you try to take the people, I mean, if you have regulars at the market, do you try to move them on to the subscription service? I let them know that this is available to them. However, my market is in Montgomery. It's not in Prattville. So it's a different, basically it's a different customers. My subscriptions are, deliveries are done in Prattville and the neighboring town of Millbrook. These are like twin cities. They're together. And then Montgomery is 25 minute drive from me. So it's completely different group of customers. And they rarely overlap, I would say. And how many customers do you have on the subscription service typically? It varies. I have at least at least a dozen at any given time. And they come and go all the time because most of them are military and they move in and out of area. So I lose and gain about equal equal amount of subscriptions every year. This is not my primary business right now. Montgomery Farmer's Market is the primary one. And that's where I do most of my sales. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your background because you're actually trained as a pianist and, and I think quite a quite good one, too. You have a lot of background in that. So why, like, did you ever envision yourself going into being a bread baker instead of a, a pianist? No, uh, it's a funny thing, but I actually often talk about the difference. Why? such a dramatic twist I quit my musical career and by career I mean making money I mean making money from music I quit music because I never know if I did well with music it's such a subjective thing that even if you feel you're doing well people may not think you've done well and there's no good criterion in music to tell you that you have succeeded. And I'm not even talking about like international competition awards and all that kind of stuff. I don't really subscribe to those. But music is so subjective and so individual that you can never get fully satisfied from your accomplishments in music, you know. 
uh, with bread making, it's, it's so immediate. You see the result, you taste the result, you smell the result, and you always get feedback. People come back and tell you, oh, I love this and I want more. So I know it's not, it's not a, the same at all. And I think part of the reason I quit the musical career is because I could never have a measurable measurable way of telling if I did well or not. It, and that was bothering me a lot. Do you notice any commonalities? I mean, you talked a lot about the differences, but is there anything from your background and training that's transitioned over into bread? Yes. Lots of shoulder work. <laughs> that's the only, the only commonality that I find is a lot of physical work and dedication. You have to put in hours to get results. You know, it's not going to happen to you magically. Yeah, that's pretty right. funny. You need to have a you need to have a stellar work ethic. Um, talking a little bit about marketing, I I know you're very active on social media. What do you do to try to market your breads aside from obviously selling at the market every week? Is there anything that you could recommend to somebody who's starting a bread business? Oh, yes, absolutely. Facebook is awesome. You can bash it all you want and call it fake news spreader or whatever. For marketing, it's an indispensable tool and very, very inexpensive. But advertising on Facebook is not the only thing you can do. What I did, and it happened sort of by accident, but now I can absolutely recommend that as a technique. No matter where you are in the country or in the world, find a local foodie group in your area. There's Facebook groups that are dedicated to local restaurants, local small businesses, and they are big groups usually. And they have a really large, diverse group of uh, subscribers to that group. So you need to get in that group and start posting there. A lot of those groups actually would not let you post regularly if you're a business because they don't like people advertising. But some of these groups would say, if you're a business, we will allow you to post once a week. And if you do more than that, we will kick you out. And so that's what I did. I asked one of my customers, you know, if, if she could recommend a group where the military is hanging out, the local military and she said, the military is not going to let you in their group, but I can give you another group where we're all hanging out and finding out about local restaurants and businesses. And she recommended that group. And that group had like, I, I forgot, 25,000 members. <laughs> so I posted there and it literally happened overnight. I posted there and just introduced myself and say, hey, I'm a local baker and here's what I do. Literally, the next morning I came to the market, there was a line waiting for me. So I definitely recommend that technique. And I have been posting in that group for three years now, and nothing but good things came out of that. Now, I, I did want to ask, I don't know if this will be that correlated with the rest of our conversation, but I do like to kind of, I, I just am interested in hearing people have immigrated. I feel like I, I read that you immigrated as an adult. And I just was wondering if you could share a little bit about that story and 
maybe why you moved or what you remember about the process or what it was like for you to land in the United States. Yeah, just just if you have anything to share about that, I think those stories are always fascinating. Oh, sure. Uh, my family is Ashkenazi Jews. And so at the time when we were immigrating, there, I don't know if it's still on or not, but the Jewish refugees were going through this um, rigorous process of inter- being interviewed and led in the country here based on, uh, you know, anti-Semitism in their own country. When I was growing up, the anti-Semitism was part of the daily life, and we were just so used to it. We were not even paying attention much to it, you know. My parents went through this uh, in the 70s, through this process where they couldn't attend the colleges that they wanted to attend because they were Jewish, and they had to go to some, you know, deep into the country, some in Siberia or Ural Mountains to go to colleges and get the education that they wanted and that was basically the path that a lot of Jews had to take you know so it was kind of a a very customary thing by the time I was a teenager it was not quite as prominent anymore but it was still part of the daily culture like a person could call your names anywhere anytime and it was not frowned upon you know I think the last drop for us was the economic collapse in the beginning of the 90s where you know I was a musician my sister was an artist and my mom was a a dressmaker and a designer and we basically had no future there anymore people had no money the economy collapsed the country fell apart things got really bad and um, when people get miserable and they have no money and no prospects they start getting angry (laughs) And they look for someone to blame. And so things started getting heated up again. And, you know, my sister, I think the last drop for us was my sister was attacked on a street with a knife. Someone was calling her names based on her Jewish ethnicity and whatever. And it was just the last drop for us. And we left. We had to go through a pretty unpleasant process of being interviewed at the American Embassy in Moscow we had to wait for five years to get to that interview and then you know the interview process is grueling one they ask you for personal stories and you have to prove that you're really running away for the reasons that you outlined and they uh, interrogate you in the pretty uh uh unelegant way <laughs> should I say um intimidating and it, it's kind of, yeah, they treat you with susp- suspicion. You know, that's what it is. And I understand may, why that's this may be the case, but I've heard some pretty <laughs> unpleasant stories from other people who experienced the interviews, you know. And by the time we got there, we were sort of ready for this kind of attitude. But we had pretty strong stories to back our you know, claim that we're a refugee. So we, it took us another year and a half or so to get all of our documents in order and sell our possessions. And then in 1997, we finally jumped the pond. And the transition for us was, for the most part, a very smooth one, I must say. We found a job pretty quickly. We landed in Maryland, and Maryland, the community we ended up in, was very friendly. And their Jewish community was extremely strong. 
and they assisted us with the job search and they taught us basics on how to pass the interview, how to get employed, how to do basic things in the American daily culture, like from basic things like how to write a check or how to get a medical insurance and, you know, how to apply for things. So they assisted us and we've got tremendous support from them. And then we kind of, each of us found their own path eventually and started living normal lives. Wow. That is, that is an amazing story. And I, you know, I just can't help but hear stories like that and just be so blessed about, you know, how much opportunity I've been given and, you know, how easy it's been for me. And uh, it's amazing to just also hear not, not only the story, but you just have a very calm perspective about it all. And um, you, you just seem to be at peace with it. And it just is very telling about the kind of person that you are. Thank you. I definitely take nothing for granted. But, you know, it's it's funny. I often talk to my sister about this. When we came to this country, we had an interview with a social, we were assigned a social worker through a Jewish community. And she asked us, what language do we speak at home? And I, my eyes popped and I said, well, Russian, of course, you know, that's our native language. And Russian, of course. And she's like, don't say, of course, because, you know, give it time and you'll see what's going to happen. And now my sister and I talk on the phone in English. And I am amazed (laughs) because I never thought that that would happen. But she's married to an immigrant from Iran and I'm married to a born and raised American boy. You know, so we speak English at home to all of our family members. (laughs) <laughs> so we basically don't use our native language anymore. Almost, almost none. Well, you're clearly very, very fluent in English now. And were you pretty fluent in English when you came over? I I spoke English okay. I would say okay, because I was lucky when I attended the musical conservatory in Ukraine. I happened to have a very good English professor. I was lucky. My sister came to this country with no English at all. But she picked it up very quickly. So, because oh, she's an extroverted, she she likes to talk and she's very communicable. I am an introvert, and it was really hard to, for me to break out of my shell and start talking to people. The hardest part was the phone conversations, because you don't see people's faces and their mannerisms, and you don't know really how they react to you, and so half the time you don't understand them. So that was the hardest part. But you watch enough TV and listen enough to NPR, (laughs) good English, you know, and then you pick stuff up. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's very fascinating. And I'm going to bring it back to the baking bread business side of things. And uh, do you have any stories that come out of the past few years of running this business that stand out to you? Yes. Um, One of my favorite moments I keep talking about Last year or two years ago, I started offering a Christmas dessert that's called Stollen. It's a sort of an Advent slash Christmas cake from Germany that you bake and it it has a very long shelf life. And it's supposed to sit on the table for the duration of the Advent, which is, you know, weeks leading up to Christmas. And you eat a small piece of it every day to make that season special. 
it's it has a lot of spices in it and a, a candied fruit and it's really really highly aromatic and so I started making those for sale and this lady came to me she ordered several of them and she said she had German roots and she wanted to try it and see if she likes it and so I was waiting for her feedback and she wrote to me a couple of weeks later and said then when she ate that cake she started crying because this is how she remembered her childhood and that makes it so special to me this is absolutely priceless i don't care how much people pay for remembered this is the priceless moment because i can completely relate to this this is the moment when you experience your childhood again simply because you tasted or smelled something. Yeah, that's very cool. And you just reminded me that I I didn't actually ask you about what people pay for your bread. I know you're making over 100 loaves for a market, but what are you charging and has it changed over time? I haven't changed my price since I started. I, I raised the price a little bit on some things that are specialty things, like my stolen, for example, uh, went from $12 to $13 because some of the ingredients went up in price. But for the most part, I charge $6 for my loaf of bread of any kind, whether it has seeds or doesn't have seeds. I just keep things very simple so that it's easy to remember. And the person has an expectation when they come in, they know that the loaf of bread is going to be $6. I charge $3 for all of my pastries, which is croissants, scones, and uh, I now make Bostocks. I don't know if you've heard of Bostocks. It's a dessert type breakfast pastry. And then there's some specialty items like those stolens or like this year for Thanksgiving, I was making pumpkin bread that looked like pumpkin and tastes like pumpkin. Those, those are special. So I charge a little bit more. I charge $7 for those. But that's, that's about it. I don't fiddle with prices too much because it, it complicates things and it's hard to accept cash if you go seven fifty or six fifty. It makes it more difficult to make a transaction. So I keep them even. Yeah. And I just wanted to wrap up this conversation by asking where you'd like for this business to go. We already touched on it quite a bit and I have a pretty good idea for where you'd like it to go. But uh, what's your vision for the future? What I want to do, ideally, is to stay within the cottage food, but scale up. I would like to get a bigger oven and bake more and get into several markets and being able to sell to maybe businesses or do pop-up sales. But I would like to stay in the cottage food because it keeps things a little bit more simple and you don't have any long-term commitments with the sales or gigantic loans for expensive equipment that goes into hundred thousands of dollars. So if I could stay in a cottage business, but bake more, that would probably be ideal for me because I would still keep things flexible, but be able to make more money. Well, it sounds like you're in the right vocation. You, you are clearly <laughs> so passionate about this. And I've loved talking with you. And it sounds like you not only do it for the business, but also for your own personal self and, and well-being. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this conversation. 
Now, if somebody wants to reach out to you, where can they find you or reach out? The best way to find me is on Facebook. Just look for Wild Yeast Kitchen on Facebook. I have a very active page and I respond to messages and comments there very quickly. If you want to learn more about my bread, you can go to wildyeastkitchen.com and just look at pictures and read the descriptions. But all the action is on Facebook, really. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Yulia, for jumping on here and talking with us today. It's It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure likewise. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of the Forger Podcast. Yulia is clearly a very dedicated, hardworking, and passionate bread baker, and it's easy to see why her customers love her products so much. If you are thinking about starting a home bakery or a cottage food business of your own, head on over to Forger.com to check out your state's cottage food law. For more information about this episode, go to Forger.com slash podcast slash 24. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.